0: Good morning. Today we're going to talk about worship. (coughs) Now it's a buzzword in Christian circles. Worship, isn't it? Um, We use it all the time. We use it to describe experiences. We use it to describe church services. Going to a worship service. Um, We use an. We even use it as an adjective to describe particular types of music. Some music apparently is worship music. The word worship is used to describe something that groups of people can do, like we may be doing this morning, I hope we are. It's also used to describe something that an individual can do. So you can worship individually, right? In fact, it's used so often and in so many different ways that I'm fairly certain that a good bunch of you probably think the word worship is a little vague, and I agree with you. In my experience, because it is so vague for so many people, people end up defining worship by a particular style, a style of something that happens, maybe worship. So I've got three examples that may be relatable to you. So the first one is this, a production-heavy worship experience, all right? Production-heavy worship event. Now, you would normally experience this type of worship style if you were to attend probably a large Christian conference of some sort or Maybe a very well-resourced church, because I know how much it would cost to set up a stage to look like that. The question that we need to ask ourselves is: Is the production-heavy worship experience real or fake? Right? Is it real or fake? There's one worship style. Here's a second, and it's the intimate worship experience the intimate worship experience often focuses on the individual about your experience and interaction with God and it's not as flashy it's not as bright it's not as loud often as the large production heavy worship event but nonetheless this is about your worship and experience with God the question still remains is that real or is it fake? All right? Well, then the third one, and I like to call this one simple worship. Simple worship. It um, doesn't have lights, no lasers, no fog machines, no minor keys, no Anything. It's just some people and maybe it's in a little building somewhere, maybe it's in a jungle somewhere, maybe it's simple worship with all the extras stripped away. And the question we still have to ask ourselves, is that real or is it fake? I'm guessing that already at least one of those examples has made you inwardly sneer. And under your breath, mutter, that's fake, right? That's not worship. And one of those examples has left you thinking, I wish I could worship like that every day. But rather than being directed by our own preferences, let's turn to God's word and also ask the spirit to help us hear his voice today. Let's pray. Lord Aaron got up and reminded us already this morning that you speak. You have words to say. You have truth to tell. And so as we read your word, Lord, only what you have to say, let only that ring in our ears. Lord, give us discerning hearts. Just sift any words that I have to say that don't align and throw them away. Lord, we only want to hear your voice this morning. Holy Spirit, don't let us just be hearers of the word. Will you help us also be doers of the word? In Jesus' name, amen. The question I really want to ask this morning as we dive into the next section of Malachi and it's the question that I think Malachi is really leading us to, is what makes worship real? All right? What makes worship real? Whether it's production heavy, whether it's sort of that um, very experiential or individual worship, if it's very simple worship, what makes any of those possibilities real worship? Or what makes them fake worship for that matter? That's the question I want to try and ask. What makes worship real? And to try and answer that question, what we're going to do together is break down the passage from Malachi. So if you have to find Malachi and you haven't already, now's a good time to do that. Malachi, we're still in chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 6 down to the end of the chapter today. We're going to try and break down that passage from Malachi so that we can see what, first of all, we need to understand what God had to say to his people then, right? Malachi didn't live in our time, didn't live in Raymond Terrace. He's speaking to a different people and a different culture. But we need to understand what God was saying to his people then. And then what we're going to do is try and sort of pull out the principles of what God was saying then to see what God is still saying to us today. The way we're going to do that is I'm just going to sort of run through this um, and I'm going to give a few little titles. I don't have them on the screen. If you're a person who'd like to write them down, you can jot them down the margin of your Bible. If you like filling out a notebook, I'll give you a couple of little... um, suggestions of ways of organising this passage a little bit. All right, so let's jump into it. Malachi chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 6. And really this whole passage from verse 6 down to the end of the chapter is broken up into two big sections. One is the charge that God has against his people, right? The second is then God's explanation of why that charge is valid, why that accusation is valid. So they're the two big categories And really the charge, the accusation that God has against his people is just found in verse 6. So have a look at it. We'll just read that, just that verse together. And really this is about the priests who dishonour God's name. Let's read it. You'll you'll see it, I think. Chapter 1, verse 6, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, says this. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is my fear? That word could be also translated as reverence, all right? Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, and here we hear the priests speaking back now, how have we despised your name? All right, there's that little... uh, Mark, that I told you about last week as we began this series where God makes an accusation or a statement and the people make a statement in return. And maybe in the overview of Malachi, you saw that outlined as well. Here, the accusation is, you don't honour me. Right? You don't honour me. You priests who despise my name, God says to them. And they respond with, How? How have we despised your name? They're pushing back on God's statement. So there's the structure that I mentioned last week, God's statement versus man's statement. And right from the outset, we can see that this passage, this accusation that God has, is going to centre around the issue of rightful honour. Rightful honour. All right, so God says, you despise my name, you don't honour me. And the people say, Well, how? How have we not honoured you? And their hearts, of course we've honoured you. All right, We're doing all the stuff, right? We're bringing the sheep. We're bringing the lambs. We're doing the sacrifices. We've honoured you. So God goes on to explain. And that's going to take up the rest of the passage. So let's just keep going. I'm going to give you a couple of little headings to put down. Verses 7 and 8 begin with God's really explanation. How he's going to respond to the people pushing back on the idea that that they've not honoured him, that they've not rightfully honoured him and they've despised his name. So God's going to give, to begin with, a human example. right? A human example that that the people should be able to relate to. Let's read it together, verse 7 and 8. He responds, God responds by saying, well, this is how you've dishonoured me, really. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Can you see the human example? God sort of says, okay, you've been bringing lame sacrifices and not... Not really like, well, maybe we could say lame, like we use the word lame. God looked at their sacrifice and just went, what a lame sacrifice, right? (laughs) But it was literally lame. Like someone looked at their flock and went, I've got to take a sheep up to the temple to be sacrificed as part of my worship. Which one will I take? And there was this really like awesome stud ram there, puffing his chest out, big shoulders. And prized, prized animal. All the ones where the other farmers walked past and just went, "Man, I wish I had a ram like that," you know. And they were like, "Eh, I might hold onto that one." Oh, look! Look at that poor limpy lamb up the back there. All right, it was blind. It's probably not going to make it anyway. I'll take that one. They literally took lame animals up. And God says, "Try and do that with the local mayor." Try and, try and take a gift up to the local mayor of your town and say, Mayor, I brought you a gift. Here, have this half-dead lamb. <laughs> see, see how the mayor would respond. That's the human example that God gives, all right? Let's keep moving down to verse 9. God then makes a statement about the fact that if, if we don't change, if, if the people don't change how they're approaching worship, their worship will be rejected. Let's read together, verse 9. And now entreat the favour of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. See, God's moved from the human example of the local mayor being pretty unhappy with the lame sacrifice, the lame gift. And now he says, now try doing the same thing with God, right? Right? You bring that type of gift to God and say, God, I've brought you a wonderful gift. Can you please be favoured? You know, show favour to us. Do you think God will accept that type of worship? And he says, your worship will be rejected. Verse 10. We're going to extend that a little bit further. The heading that I would put next to that is that the uselessness of further worship. If, if there's no change, right? The uselessness of further worship. Verse 10. God says, Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Can you hear that? I mean, if we were to bring it into our day and and we were offering this sort of lame worship, this sort of lame sacrifice to God, God is basically calling out, Raymond Terrace Community Church, I wish that there was one person sitting here today that would get here early and lock that door and not let anybody else in. Because it is pointless turning up to worship if that's the way you're going to worship. All right, this is getting a little uncomfortable, right? This is God's... Statement about it's useless to go on worshipping if you're going to worship like that. That's what he says to his people. All right, verse 11. God's ultimate goal in worship. Now now we're going to start shaping God's responding now to the people, letting them know, what's my ultimate goal in worship? So this is one to... you, You should be tucking this one away. This is important. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun... Thanks, Lindy. To its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's God's ultimate goal in worship. And I'm sorry to say it's not about your experience. about his name. God's ultimate goal in worship, that his name be great. Not just here but everywhere. Not just in our street but in all the streets of Raymond Terrace. In all of the Hunter, in all of New South Wales, in all of Australia, in South Africa, in England Every single place that people would see the name of God and they would know his name is awesome. He is awesome. He is great. That's God's ultimate goal in worship. And then the last part of the chapter, really, God just summarizes and repeats the charge. So we'll read it together. Verse 12. But you profane it. That's He's talking about his name. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. Basically, they're like, I'm so tired of this, God. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And again, my name will be feared among the nations. This is God's word. So what we need to do now is sort of pull out some of the principles of it, To see what was God saying then, yes. How do we understand that and relate to it? Because as far as I'm concerned, I don't remember the last time that we set up the sacrifice and the altar and asked you to bring your lambs in. It's not the way this is operating anymore for good reason scripturally. So let's pull out the principles and see what we can take from this passage. First principle, and I do have this on the slide, is this. As we reflect on what God was saying to his people in Malachi, we can see that worship is primarily about relating to God's greatness. First and foremost, worship is about relating to God's greatness. God has gone to great lengths to reveal who he truly is to his people. And his expectation is that people relate to him on the terms that he has set. You get that? God has revealed himself to his own people and he sets the expectations on how we should respond and relate to him. And he's the one who gets to set the terms for that, not us. So when we know who God is, when we know who God is, then how we relate to him, that's worship. In its purest and most basic sense, how we relate rightly to who God really is, that's worship. Right? Why? Because God is profoundly awesome. I heard somebody recently speaking on the way that we use the word great. and I thought it was a good example. God is great. Agree? Amen? If you say, it, amen, right? God is great. Amen. But also, you could have gone out for dinner last night to the Tav. And you might have had their mixed grill. And it was? Great. Or you went into... I haven't been into Newcastle for a while. I'm trying to avoid the place. Is there still, like, a cold rock somewhere there? Yes, there is. All right, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Of course it, Chris. Um, Cold rock. Where they mash up the ice cream, they chuck fillings in, crush it all together, scoop it back up off a rock. Vinny's up there, just... Right. And it was great. My ice cream was great. My mixed grill was great. I watched a movie last night. They actually profaned the name of God numerous times, but the movie was great. You see the problem? Yeah. Everything's great. Yet... Yeah. God says, my name will be great. And what he means is, above all other things, more profoundly awesome than anything else that you could possibly compare it to. That's how my name is, and that's how I want you to relate to me. His greatness should be evident everywhere. We can see that in verse 11. We saw it in verse 14. Every nation, everywhere. So at its purest sense, the principle that we need to pull out is when we start thinking about true worship as opposed to fake worship. Is that this is primarily about relating to God and who he truly is. And the fact that he is profoundly great. Right? Right? So let's keep that first principle in mind. Let's move on to the second one. Here's the second the second principle, and I, I say this carefully because we've got a lot of great musicians in the room, but there are no such things as worship songs. Only songs that are given in worship. Now, what I mean by that is because God doesn't actually say anything about singing in Malachi so I'm taking a little bit of license there but let me try and extract the principle here There are no such things as worship sacrifices or worship offerings or worship temple services in Malachi's day there were no such thing Now don't get me wrong there were people who were turning up to temple to bring their sacrifice to give their offering, to attend the prescribed feast, there were people doing that, but God didn't call any of them worship. None of it was worship. And and we can turn up here and sing a set list of five or six songs, and none of it could be worship. And we can label the songs worship songs if we like. We can have downloaded them from CCLI. They could say God's name. They could make all sorts of claims, but just because we call them a worship song doesn't mean that they're worship. Did you see that God would rather know worship than false worship? He says that in verse 10. Would someone please just shut the door, he said. <laughs> Can you imagine God turning up at a church? Can you imagine God turning up at our church and saying, please, would someone just shut the door? What a tragedy. How devastating. All right, so, so we can take from that that there are rituals that are involved in worship. And as religious and as spiritual as they may seem, those rituals could smell like dung in God's nostrils. If you don't believe me, skip forward to what we're going to read next week, chapter 2, verse 3. It's stronger than what I just said. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. God says, your worship not only smells like dung, but I'm going to take that dung and rub it in your faces. It's pretty horrendous stuff. It's confronting stuff. And it should be. Because we are dealing with the greatness and awesome majesty of God's name. Unless any of the rituals that we can do as we come together as a church, whether that's singing or giving or praying or open worship or any of those things, unless they reflect the heart of the relationship of the one who offers them, they're not worship. In fact, they're dung. Third principle. Real worship pushes back against consumerism. I'm going to read to you verses 12 and verse 13 again of chapter 1. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is the food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. All right, I want you to see the irony for a moment in what God is saying and how the people are responding. The very people who profaned the table were the ones who were complaining that the table was polluted. Do you see that? The people are complaining, the worship table is polluted, and God's saying, Who brought the worship sacrifices? You're the one who brought the sheep and put it on the table, and now you're complaining that the worship is lame. The people brought their garbage gifts and then complained that the temple stunk. You see the irony? So if you walk out of church this morning and you say, I didn't get much out of worship today, then you are part of the problem. Worship is never about what I get out of it. That's consumerism. It only is a value if it values me. That's consumerism. Instead, worship is always about what you participated in. What you contributed to our worship. And I'm not talking about the fact that you came up to speak at a microphone or not. Although that would be great. So real worship pushes back against the idea that we're here to consume or to gain from the worship. But let me tell you, when there is real worship... How it absolutely warms our hearts, right? But that's not our goal. That's not what we come for. All right. I'll get myself into trouble if I keep going. So that's fourth principle. Fourth principle. What we offer to God says a lot about what we think of God. What we offer to God says a lot about what we think of God. Okay? Worship is always an offering of some sort. It certainly was in the Old Testament. It still is today. It's what we participate in. It's what we engage in as we come to relate to the greatness of God. So worship is always an offering. It's a giving of our own identity over who God is. Maybe it's an offering of time. Thanks, Hans, for being so honest this morning. No, it really actually helped me worship as I reflected on the way that God shapes, not just to point out you, but to, for all of us. Because we've all been there, right? I have. Get up in the morning and just think, the last place I really want to be today is church. And then you go. Maybe for um, appearance's sake. Again, how gracious God is to meet me in that place when I've turned up, mostly out of appearance... And yet he still ministered to my heart and reminded me afresh, Chris, this is who I am. So maybe it's your time, whether that's in a church service or any other form of worship that you could engage in over the course of your week. Maybe it's your money, that's an offering to God, a sacrifice. Maybe it's your words, maybe it's your actions, All of that is a part of who we are and what we choose to give to God. So what we choose to give to God tells him and other people what we really think of him. That's what happens in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honours his father. This is the original complaint that God had. A son honours his father and a servant his master. So if I'm a father, where's my honour? right? If I am a master, where's my reverence? Where's my fear? Are you priests who despise my name? Do you see that connection? What they gave, what they were giving, these polluted lame gifts, were in essence saying to God, God, we despise you. They thought they were worshipping and all the time they were just sending up placards to heaven. Hey God, we think you're lame because all we've got for you are lame gifts. So what we offer to God says a lot about what we think of God. So here's some concluding thoughts and a couple of maybe pointed applications for us to consider as we reflect on this. I asked at the very beginning, what makes worship real what makes worship real I read this quote by a guy who's now worshiping in the presence of God face to face R.C. Sproul he said this we do not segment our lives giving some time to God some to our business or schooling while keeping parts to ourselves The idea is to live all of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God and for the honour and glory of God. That is what the Christian life is all about. It's a long quote, so I tried to summarise its main ideas. Here's my attempt in defining real worship. I doubt that people will quote this like they quote R.C. Sproul's. But nonetheless, I hope it's helpful. It says, real worship is a life that authentically gives its very best to God in every sphere of life at all times. All right? And we can say amen to that. But let me tell you, that statement causes an immense problem. Because by that definition of real worship, we should shut the door. If that's the case. Because... Who here this morning can say that I have really worshipped God this week because I gave my very best to God in every sphere of life at all times? No one. So what do we do, right? On the basis of that definition, we should just shut up shop. Go home now. We can still say the service is finishing early. You could make different plans for Sunday next week. Don't bother coming back. Because our worship will never measure up to the greatness of God's character. But yet, even on that point, Malachi, I think, is a beacon of hope. Because just like the ancient Israelites, our best will never be good enough. Just as they did, we also need the promise of someone who gives themselves perfectly on our behalf. Right? We need a rescuer, just like those in Malachi's day needed a rescuer. I love this verse from Malachi 4 and 2. It says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Right? The son of righteousness has risen. Malachi was pointing forward to it. We are here to say, no, he has risen. Yeah. Right? The Christ has come. Jesus, who himself was the perfect sacrifice, has offered himself perfectly on our behalf. The priests are no longer required to keep coming back year after year to offer sacrifices. John chapter 1 verse 29, you know this verse? The messenger that Malachi was pointing forward to, he saw it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he points to Jesus. Jesus or the writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with much better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the question is this morning, in your worship, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Right? And if that's the case, then worship while you wait. It could be this afternoon, it might be tomorrow, it might be in a hundred years' time, but worship while you wait. So out of those four principles, make your worship about relating to God and His greatness. That's how you worship while you wait. You make your worship about relating to God and His greatness. Then, act, live, live, and sing out of your worship. Yeah. Not as a means to gain something. But simply to express, God, you are great. And you deserve great things. Thirdly, I want you to worship as you wait by pushing back against the age of consumerism that we live in. All right? By actively participating in making God's name great. And you can do that here You can do that in your backyard, in view of your neighbours, in your workplace, in the schoolyard. But push back against the age of consumerism. And lastly, give God your very best. Give God your very best. Not because it impresses him. He doesn't need that. But because in doing so, you give him what he desires most, which is you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for meeting us, for being gracious towards us. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. The son of righteousness has risen. Offering himself on our behalf perfectly. Lord, we truly want to worship you. We truly want to give our very best to you. You deserve it. Your name is great. You deserve all honour and praise and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.